So uh, last week we um, kind of kicked the year off with a uh, brand new series. We call it Don't Move the Lampstands, which is odd, but um, really the, the, the kind of the sort of the idea, the theme behind the series is, you know, what, what are we doing here? Why are we here? Uh, it's, I mean, increasingly people don't go to church and, and those, and those who do tend to come, it's not, it's not like a high priority. So, you know, there's a, there's a tendency now for people to kind of do church like once, twice a month, um, if they do it at all. And and there's a question, why is that? What, what's the deal? What's, what's, what is church about? Um, we did, we did, uh, last week we looked at, um, some, uh, some, some surveys, uh, and I think I have the survey here again. Uh, the, the Pew Research always does this thing where they ask people why it is that they go to church, if they go to church. And uh, it's kind of hard to see, but 80% say that they come to become closer to God. So presumably 80% of the people here are trying to come closer to God. Uh, 69% uh, want their children to have a moral foundation. 68% want to be a better person. So 68% people say it's very important when they come to church that they come away with a sense of how to be good or better than they were when they got here. Uh, comfort in tri- times of trial, 66%. Valuable sermons, 60%. Um, continue family's religious tradition, 37%. I feel an obligation to go, 31%. These are the people who are scared of God. They're like, God's going to get me. He's, he's, he's just waiting to smash me, so I better show up. Um, and then my favorite, of course, to please my family, spouse, or partner, 16% of people come to church because uh, it makes, so it, keeps the, it keeps the peace. Someone in the family is very religious, and you know, if you, if you, didn't, you didn't show, it's weird though. It's weird that that's, that's what people say. That's, you know, Pew kind of gathers all this research. And yet the Bible we saw last week has a completely different rationale. The Bible t- assumes that uh, the church or regular gathering to worship should be a, a, a non-negotiable part of life. Why? Why? Well, last week we took a look, a look at uh, the Old Testament, and we, we saw that in the Old Testament, um, the way that worship was understood, part of what worship involved was that there was a menorah, a lampstand, that illuminated that's the only job of the lampstand was in um, in the tabernacle was to illuminate uh, the bread and the wine of presence, and we saw that the bread and wine of presence kind of prefigures and symbolizes Jesus, and we took communion with that in mind, and then we looked at the New Testament, and the New Testament Jesus understands himself as the bread and the wine uh, or the grape juice here, uh, and then and then but but. But John and the early church understood themselves to be the lampstands. That the whole point of being a Christian was to illuminate, put the spotlight on Jesus. And that your entire life ought to be sort of organized around being the lampstands. Putting a light, putting a spotlight on the Lord. And we said, if that's the case, then man, we'd better not you know, get so caught up in other stuff that we end up moving the lampstand. So that we end up leaving, 
you know, Jesus behind because we've got other priorities, right? Uh, according to Pew Research, our priorities are to become close to God, to make sure our kids have a moral foundation, uh, to do all of these things, to learn some stuff from the leader guy. There's all these different reasons that we set up that kind of move the lampstand away from the primary purpose of human life. Now, the reason that we get caught up in that, I think, I think most places start, most people, most communities start with this in mind. But then we get caught up in other things along the way. So for the next couple of weeks, we're actually going to be looking at what the church looks like when this is happening. So we're going to see that today. Uh, We're going to be in Acts 2. Interestingly, uh, our church is, I think, 52, almost 53 years old. When this uh, building that we're in right now was dedicated in 1976 in May, uh, J. Vernon McGee, that's a name some of you might be familiar with, he was a radio preacher, kind of a famous dude in the area for being a Bible guy. He came and gave the inaugural sermon, and he dedicated this place. And his sermon was on the text that we're going to be looking at, doing a deep dive the next couple of weeks, Acts 2, uh, 40 to 47. So let's jump in. This is um, mostly from the Common English Bible Translation, although I've made some significant changes that I'll highlight on the way. But this is where we're going to be a couple of weeks. So let's read the whole thing together and then, and then do a deep dive. With many words, he, Peter, testified to them and encouraged them, saying, Be saved from this sick generation. Those who happily received Peter's message were baptized. God brought about 3,000 people into the community that day. The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to their shared meals, to their prayers. A sense of awe came over everyone. Usually that's fear. Everyone was afraid, but really it's fear in the sense of like, wow, this is unreal. I can't believe this is happening. God performed many wonders and signs for the the apostles. All the believers were united. They shared everything. It was common. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed them. Every day they met together. Every day they met together in the temple and ate in their homes. They shared food with gladness and simplicity. They praised God and his grace for them was obvious to everyone. The Lord added daily to the community of those who were being saved. Let's uh, jump in. First off, where are we? So to take a closer look at the text, the first thing we need to know is where we're at. Um, what's, what's just happened? And I want to suggest to you that what's just happened is this, the spotlight just got shown on Jesus. Uh, the, the, it just happened. This is the day of Pentecost. This is the very beginning of Acts. The birth of the church. The inauguration of the church. The very beginning of the church. And what had happened, I have a painting here by El Greco from like uh, 1596. It might be a little hard to see. El Greco was a Renaissance, um, El Greco meaning the Greek. He was Spanish, but he had, uh, he was a, a Greek ancestry. And he was a very odd painter because he was very interested at the time. At the time, most painters were interested in like what we would think of as photorealism. Like trying to make things look exactly as they appear to the eye. But El Greco was more into like, he was into drama and he was into the fantastic and the mysterious. And uh, a lot of his paintings, he's actually a precursor to, you might know, Salvador Dali. Um, Salvador Dali was influenced by him in the 20th century. Uh, he, he, he loved like, he loved things that were dark. And, and, and so when he, when he uh, attacked religious themes in his, in his work, he often was drawn to the mysterious portions of the Bible. And this, this portion of the text is, is, is one of those. It's Pentecost. And the scripture says that Peter and the disciples, they, they come out and the Holy Spirit descends on them. The Holy Spirit comes and rushes into them. And, and Peter begins just 
just spewing, preaching out to all the people in Jerusalem. And when, what, he's, what he's saying is, is this. It's like, Jesus is it. You guys, all of, all of his human history, of Jewish history, of Gentile history, it's all been leading up to this guy. He was crucified. He was raised. He forgives sins. He's the Lord of the world. He offers new life. He is it. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And Peter was probably speaking in Greek or Aramaic. And yet all the people who were gathered there were from all these different other countries. And they heard in their own language what he was saying. And so there's this, this intense spotlight right now. The light is just right on Jesus. I think what we take from that, the first thing in your note sheets, um, is that the church always starts and ends with illuminating Jesus. This is the beginning. This is the, the reason. This is why we're here. This is what we do. And, and, and if you don't have this element, if we're not illuminating, highlighting, spotlighting Jesus, then we're, we're, not, we're not doing church. This isn't the real deal. It's fake. It's a waste of time. And you should go and watch football instead. Okay, Lucas. Lucas thinks that Ryan Tannehill is uh, a great quarterback. Ryan Tannehill is a joke. Oh, 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 how many pass, How many yards did he throw for? 80? Good job, buddy. Oh, that's really good. He's amazing. How much did Derrick Henry run for? Two, 180 yards? Who's carrying the offense? I love the Titans and I want them to win the Super Bowl, but Ryan Tannehill is a B at best. That's my word to you, Lucas. Go in peace, brother. You can yell at me later. He sent me this whole text about like an article he read about how Tannehill is the greatest thing ever. Like, oh, give me a break. Okay. That's what you ought to be doing if we're not here illuminating Jesus. But what happens next? What happens when a church actually does this? When all of our energy, all of our, all of our hope, all of our desire, when everything we do is focused on this, and we are the lampstand, and we are highlighting. Well, that, that's what this text is. And, and let's go on. Let's see what happens. Well, the first thing is Peter goes on, and he's like, this is what we're saying, right? Okay, this is what we're saying. And then Luke says, he says a whole bunch of other stuff. And if you could sum it up, you know, the important stuff was you gotta, Jesus is it. But, but if you, if you come with a fallout from that, whatever, all the stuff that came after was basically Peter saying, be saved from this sick generation. Some texts will say crooked or twisted, which is or fine translations. Uh, the, the Greek word is scolia. It's where we get our word scoliosis. It means bent. And the idea is that our generation, the whole world around us is bent. It's twisted. It's sick. There's something deeply wrong with the world around us. I like to harp on this because I like to, you know, pick easy targets like Google. Google's sick. And it's not that Google, you know, they, they, when their whole thing, Google's thing, they, don't be evil. That was their motto in the early days. But what we see, if we're, if we're paying attention, we notice that anytime humanity, the internet, the internet, Yesterday, I was talking to my buddy Ryan. We were talking about um, the internet, and he, and he kept saying, he, over and over, he kept saying, the internet was a mistake. 
Those of you who are younger, you don't remember a time without the internet. I do. And I remember when the internet was beginning to happen, and we were pumped, man. This was going to change the world. Things were going to be incredible. All information was going to be at the tips of our, fi- our fingertips. And suddenly, all of humanity was going to come together in a freedom of speech, and, and all would be good. And now we've got people who hate people they've never met because they saw a post that they put on InstaLikes. Okay? That's what has de- the, the internet got twisted. It was a really beautiful thing, but it got bent. And that happens with everything in our culture. If you look around and you see Jesus and you see him and you compare him to what goes on in the culture, you see that there are aspects of Jesus, but then at somehow, in a, in, a, in a really twisted, weird way, it gets moved to the side. And Peter says, be saved from this. Uh, I, I think a better translation would be, be rescued from this. If you're a long-time church person, notice that Peter does not say this. He does not say, make sure you don't go to hell. Did you notice that? Peter does not say, be saved from hell. That's not on Peter's mind. That's not on, for the most part, God's mind. God's not sitting around trying to be like, oh, who am I going to send to hell today? That's not how God operates. Instead, what God's focused on And what Peter is focused on is how to get extricated, pulled out, rescued from this twisted world. Now, uh, be saved. If some modern translations will say save yourselves, that's awful. If if your Bible says that, you need to tear out that page. NIV. I'm taking a shot at the NIV today. Yeah, don't, no. The NIV, if, if you just go to Acts 2.40 and just black it out. Bad job, guys. Uh, and the reason I say this is notice the very end of our text, the be saved, that passive voice. It's not us doing the saving. It's God doing the saving. Uh, so let's go on in the text. Look at this. The Lord added daily to the community those who were being saved. Right? Not saving themselves. The, the Greek there is unambiguous. And, uh, and it should, and no one should translate it that other way, but some people do. Uh, the idea is that God's saving, and it's not just He saves them from hell. God's looking for people who are being saved. Anybody know uh, Operation Dynamo? History buffs, nobody? give you some context. It started on May 26th, 1940, ended on June 4th, 1940. Anybody? Operation Dynamo? Man. Do what now? Close, but not quite. Uh, It's actually Dunkirk. It's the evacuation of Dunkirk was Operation Dynamo. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, when World War II started, uh, the British sent about 400,000 troops, that's a lot, by the way, 400,000 troops to France to stop the Nazi invasion. Uh, and this went very badly. Uh, in fact, the British lost about 70,000 troops um, who were either killed, wounded, or captured um, during this event on the continent. Um, and the Blitzkrieg was moving so quickly that it, it kind of Caught, uh, carved up the French and British and Belgian forces so that they were all separate and they couldn't communicate and they were all pressed to the beach, um, the French beach, and it was and the place where the British were was called Dunkirk. 
If you saw the movie from 2017, it actually does a pretty phenomenal job of giving you the feeling of what it might have been like to be these British troops. They're, they're sitting there on, uh, on May 26th. The, the, the Nazis stop attacking um, and are, they're kind of containing the British. Um, and, and at that point, the British are like, what are we going to do? And so they're trying to figure out how to get everybody from France back to Britain. So I'll just give you a little, uh, little kind of slideshow of this. This is what the beach looked like. Uh, there was 338, 9,000 British troops at Dunkirk. Um, so this is obviously a very small sliver of, of, the, of that number of people, which is why, it, by the way, it took eight days to get them out of there. But they were basically camped out on the beach, and a lot of guys, when they were waiting for the transports, would wade out into the water. A lot of them couldn't swim because they were infantry, and so they would have, be neck deep in the water waiting for boats to come to get them. So this is, this is the British uh, waiting on the beach. Next slide. This is uh, the, the ships leaving England. So at the time, the British Navy was not, um, as, didn't have enough ships to get all these guys. And so uh, Operation Dynamo encouraged regular folks who um, had merchant marine ships, you know, just people who had pleasure craft, yachts. Anybody who owned a boat in the United Kingdom was encouraged to come and cross the channel and help bail out British troops. And so this is, uh, this is London. This is um, boats on, on, in, during, the, during the Operation leaving England to go get uh, British troops. Notice that those, these, are just, these are not Navy boats. These are just regular folks. Next slide. Uh, this is a long line of British troops coming to a frigate. Uh, they're waiting in the water, and, and the guys in the frigate are going to pull them out one by one, pull them out of the water, uh, and then presumably once they've maximized their capacity, they're going to sail back uh, to England. Next slide. This is uh, a whole bunch of troops uh, going on rowboats that they found, uh, jumping onto uh, the ships. This one, it doesn't look like it's a Navy ship. This looks like a larger uh, merchant marine craft, but it might have been. It's hard to say. Uh, but you can see how many people there are and how desperate they are to get on the boats because they're just waiting for the Nazis to, um, to come get them. Next slide. During uh, the evacuation from, from Dunkirk, the Royal Air Force, the RAF, flew cover and kept the, the Nazi troops and the Nazi bombers from blowing up uh, the crafts that were escaping through the channel. And so, not, uh, so RAF fighter pilots kind of covered for eight days, covered the retreat, making sure that the beach remained clear and that, the, um, that bomber craft couldn't destroy uh, ships that were evacuating. Next slide. This is uh, the, the British troops arriving in England and, and getting ready to get off the boats and, uh, and, 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 go, and go home. Now, which one of these pictures is the one where the British are being rescued, where they're being saved? This is the one. This is the one where they're being saved. Okay? All of them, right? All of them. This is, this is a process. The rescue of the British from Dunkirk of 338,000 troops was, there, there, were, there, were so, there were a countless, there were almost an infinite number 
of times and places and images and moments when these people were being saved. Peter understands that we live in a world that's, that's deeply entangled and deeply corrupted. He knows that demonic forces own our communities and institutions, that the enemy has been given free hand to trap us and to enslave us. And Peter understands that when you start to illuminate Jesus and you put the spotlight on Jesus and the call of Jesus goes out to people, that it's not just one moment of salvation. There is one moment where we transfer from death into life. That's, that's true, of course. The moment of belief and faith, that's the moment when we, we receive eternal life and we have an eternal destiny. But that's just the beginning of the story. Because not only do we, are we receiving this eternal life, but there's an entire lifetime, a process of us being saved out of the world as it is and the world as Jesus intends it to be. The life that Jesus has for us. And, and what Peter understands is that if you highlight Jesus and you spotlight Jesus, and you say, he's the savior, he is righteousness, he is goodness, he is hope, he is the future. If you keep the spotlight on Jesus, then the church becomes a place where we are always in the process of being rescued out of the ways of the world. That's the next thing on your note sheets. The church is always in the process of rescuing people from the way of the world. And the reason I capitalize church there, the C, the big church, is that it doesn't matter what building you're in. It doesn't matter what community you're with. If it's real church, if it's true church, if it's the church where the spirit is present, there will be the illumination and the spotlighting of Christ and there will be the people who are in the process of being rescued out of the ways of the world. Let's go back uh, to the text. If you, uh, if you open your pew Bible, um, you'll see that this, I, I've radically altered this part where uh, verse 47, they, the believers, they praised God and his grace for them was obvious to everyone. Every modern translation will say instead something like, um, and they had favor with all the people. Something like that. The reason uh, grace and favor, especially in Luke's writings, Luke and Acts, they're almost interchangeable. It's the, the word charis. Um, it get, can get translated either way, grace or uh, favor. And the idea in Luke's mind um, is that when he thinks about grace, when he thinks about favor, he thinks of grace as being, as being totally unworthy and yet God um, kind of blessing you and, and loving you and being committed to you. And so he, so in Luke's mind, whenever someone has grace or has God's grace, they're a person that, that has received God's blessing, uh, favor, and they don't deserve it at all, but, but God has decided to lift them up. The reason I've uh, translated this way is, uh, it's, there's an issue with, um, prepositions, and I don't want to, go too deep, but if you are, if you are a grammar nerd, you'll uh, know, especially if you read through Luke and Acts, when, when Luke says something like, um, he, you have favor with somebody, so for example, Mary in, um, in uh, Luke 2 is told that uh, she's found favor with God, 
Okay, he uses the, uh, the preposition para, and that means with a group of people. Okay, uh, he uses this consistently. Here, uh, he uses the, the preposition pros, which means to or towards or in front of. And I think that the best way to read this is, is for us to understand that there's this community of people, and they've received God's grace, and it in front of everybody else. Okay? So there's this group of people, and they've, then they have grace, they're having grace in front of everyone. And what Luke means by that, and why I've glossed it in English, is God's grace for this community of people becomes obvious. When people are looking at the community of faith, they're seeing something that's undeniable. They're like, God's, God's on their side, clearly. God is for these people. God has done something rad for these people. And it's, and, and no one can, come on guys, no one can deny it. Luke, stop sleeping. Luke, 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 I got a question for you, buddy. Does not involve JoJo, your silly, crazy anime that you look at on Reddit. It's not that. Luke, are you familiar with Blockbuster Video? Luke knows about Blockbuster Video. That's awesome. There used to be one by the Albertsons. When Luke was a baby. <laughs> Did you guys know there is one blockbuster video still in existence? Do you know, I have a picture of uh, Sarah, uh, um, Sarah Harding, I think is her name. Uh, she is the manager of the last blockbuster. It's in Bend, Oregon. Yeah, so um, there used to be one in Perth, Australia, but that closed last year. So this is the very, very last blockbuster. Uh, and they, oh yeah, so you can go there, and they even, okay, so the next slide, this is cool, you can browse. If you, you can't read it, but, uh, the, instead of just saying blockbuster video, their, their, uh, cases say the last blockbuster. So they're, they're really holding on to it. It's actually become like a kind of a tourist spot. So you can go visit the 90s for like, uh, for a night. Um, for those of you who, uh, who, who remember the 90s, um, you remember like how basically life revolved around blockbuster. It was like, I mean, for us, when I, before I could drive and could hang out with people I really liked, uh, my parents would, uh, on Friday nights, we would, we would drive to Blockbuster, um, and there was a little Caesars next to it. And they have great pizza. It's really good. It's not greasy at all. Uh, and so, so you, you go to Blockbuster. First, you walk into Little Caesars. You're like, I want, I want your highest quality pizza. And they, they sort of laugh a little bit, and they're like, oh, okay. Um, and then you, you go next door, and you roll into Blockbuster, and it's just beautiful, man. I mean, like, it's, it's beautifully organized. Like, if you're interested in drama, there's a drama section. If you like comedy, there's a comedy section. And then all along the outside wall is the new releases. And Blockbuster was cool because Blockbuster, they, you, you, they had a guarantee. You will always get a copy of a new release. So when, you know, when The Rock came out on, on VHS... Right, Sean Connery, Nicolas Cage. When that came out on VHS, Blockbuster had four hundred thousand copies, and so they had enough for everybody. You'd go in there, everyone gets a copy of The Rock, and then you take off, and three days later, you bring it back. I liked Blockbuster. Blockbuster, when you were trying, when you when you go there, it doesn't take that long to make a decision because everything's organized in a very clear manner. 
If you want this, here are your selections. And there's ultimately not that many. What I found is that now, in the post-blockbuster era, is that I actually watch less stuff because we can't decide on what to watch. Next slide, please. You may have experienced this. It's like we go on there and, you know, you're just clicking through. And Netflix, okay, so true fact, Netflix has the rights to over 14,000 TVs and movies, TV shows and movies. At any given time, they they make 5,000 of those available to people in the United States of America. 5,000 movies and TV shows. And the way that it's organized, no one can possibly understand. Like... You, you go on the menu, and it's like, it's like we, since you watch this, you might like this. I'm like, no, I don't want to watch that. That has nothing to do. No, you're wrong. Your algorithm is awful. How is it that you can have more money than anybody but God, and you still can't come up with an algorithm that can find me a movie or a show I want to watch? So in order for us to figure out what we want to watch, we can't, we have to depend on other people to tell us. That's it. That's the only way I can find anything to watch is that one of you has to come up to me and be like, oh, Tom, you've got to see X. And then I'll be like, oh, really? And then I'll go. And of course, you can't find it on Netflix. You have to go to the manual search. And I look it up. And I'm like, oh, there it is. That's a thing that they have. And so what, for me, in order to have any kind of like access to anything that's entertaining... Um, other than me and Aaron just being like, you want to watch this? No. What about this? No. What about this? No. <laughs> like, when we get in a fight about it, it's like, <laughs> in order to avoid that, I, I need people who get excited about it. You've gone and you've searched through and you've read the articles on Vox.com about the best shows, and you watch them, and you know which ones are good, and then you come and you tell me, and then I get excited. When Luke's commenting on what happens to the church, he sees something very similar going on, right? He sees that the community is doing this, right? So there's this group of people, and they're like, Jesus is doing it. He's saving us. He's redeeming us. He's transforming our lives. He's taking broken relationships and repairing them. He's taking our sin. He's removed it completely, and he's offering us a new way of living. And it's amazing. I don't feel caught up the way I used to in all of the ways of the world because I have Jesus now, and, 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 and I can see how he operates, and it's helping me escape and those people go and they start telling other people. They're like, like this, this is awesome. And they don't even have to in some cases uh, because God's grace on them is obvious to everyone. Everyone's looking and all the stuff that's happening is this excitement, this hope, this joy, this redemption. And, and people are like, wow, God's really with them. God's doing stuff with them. And so they get excited. They, get, they, they tell. They're, they're, you don't have to like, it's not, it's, not a, a, it's not magic. It's not mysterious. It's just that because God's active and working, it becomes obvious to everyone that this is worth being a part of. This is worth checking out. It's worth a shot. God's grace is obvious to everybody because of what's happening. It's crazy stuff. And we'll be more specific about what that crazy stuff is in the coming weeks, but it's so wild and so wacky and so countercultural, so different than the way the world operates that everyone's like, something's up there. And ultimately, I may not want to like jump all in, but I'm at least interested. 
And of the people who are interested, Luke says, and daily, more people are added to the community of faith. You know, there's this whole group of people like, "Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe. And then some of them are like, you know what, this is the real deal. And the community grows. You may have heard of church growth. It's a big deal. Um, People think that the best church is the biggest church. And I don't want to knock church growth in the abstract, but I do want to note the difference between Luke's biblical vision of how churches grow and maybe our assumption about how churches grow. Notice what happened here, okay? Somebody tells me, oh, Tom, you got to check this thing out on Netflix. I'm like, oh, okay, I will. Oh, man, this is great. I love it. Okay? Similarly, the church is illuminating Christ. People's lives are being changed. It's obvious to everyone, and they're like, I want, I want in. Not. We put together the most amazing small group program. I got so many programs. Oh, you have needs? We can meet them. You have things that you're concerned about? We can, we can fix that. Just come here. We'll fix you. Not, man, look at the production values on this, you know, event. Not all the things that we assume are the catalyst for success. Instead, it's a group of people who take seriously the need to put the spotlight on Jesus and see what happens. It's the next thing you're no cheese. When the church is in the rescuing business, God, God adds the right people. Remember it says the Lord added people daily. Again, I don't want to knock um, programs. I think the programs are great. I do. I think they're really helpful. The programs and, and, and all of the production values and the, the cool business tactics and the advertising and all that stuff, the, the role there is to be like, is to make sure that this is getting done. And when this gets done, whether it's through a program or just grassroots or people just bumping into each other and loving Jesus together, however it happens, that's when God adds the right people. And I say the right people too because you know something? God's, honestly, are we, are we, are we looking for like the coolest, you know, best dressed people? Is that who we want here? Is that what God's after? God's after like the people who have it all together. God's like, oh man, I'm really jealous of your sneakers. You belong in my community. Does God say that? Or is God more like, oh, you've recognized that the world is a twisted, broken place and you want out? God's like, oh, you've been damaged. The world took a shot at you. Your relationship blew up. You got addicted. You can't handle X. Your kids are out of control. 
You don't know the next step. You're afraid. The world sold you a bill of goods and you've come up empty. There's a way out. I had a list of like uh, nine things, but we're running short on time. So, Mom, could you just go to the very last one? Just, here's a whole bunch of things that I just, you know, I was like, what's wrong with the world? I was like, oh, here's the first nine that came to my mind. How we handle these things. The truth about the world and God and sin, money, status and social standing, sex, parenting, addictions, marriage and family, people with special needs in their families, singleness and how to operate it, operate in singleness in this world. These things are all just, you walk out these doors and they are so twisted, so broken, and they are wrecking us. And they have wrecked us and there's a whole lot of other people out there who they've wrecked. And what the world needs is not another slick program and we do need better lighting though. I'm sticking with that. Last week, if you were here, we saw that uh, Maryland had no control, no spotlighting and like, I would say what, we're at about 30% of these are out. So just that's basic upkeep, though. That's not like putting on a show. Well, I'm not going to Disneyland here. I'm just saying, like, let's be able to illuminate the building. <coughs> also, it'd be nice to have automatic uh, blackout shades. That'd be cool. But whatever. I'm just saying that's not, that's not the focus. Those are things that's out there. Um, but no, the real the focus The focus is taking that twistedness, exposing it in the light of Christ, and seeing it made straightened. And recognizing that that we're so deeply entangled that this is a process that takes all of our lives. You're not going to wake up tomorrow and be like, I've been rescued from Dunkirk. No, there's a whole lot of, you've got to get on the boat and wait for the boat. And you got to, there has to be someone, you know, shooting down the bombers. And all of these things have to happen. This, this life journey, this process of being extricated, pulled out of the world, that's our business. And when we're living that, the other stuff will get sorted out. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we come to you uh, not as perfect people, but as people who um, confess and own that we're broken and defective. God, it seems like, you know, we, we conquer one thing and another thing pops up. We, we get freed from one way of the world and, and then another one ensnares us. And all of it, Lord, we just ask that we'll be people who are just putting the light on you, on Jesus, that that'll be our goal, that'll be our heart. And that in and through that, you will rescue us over and over and over again. From the first moment of faith that gives us eternal life to the last moment of freedom. That shining on you will be our goal and that rescuing us will be your work. And God, we ask, we ask you to bring more people who need that. That we might walk with them. 
and live with them and spotlight you with them. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.